Okay, guys. Um, we are going to read a lot of scripture today. So keep your Bibles out, and I'm just going to have little prompts in our slides uh, telling you where to read. But our, our text for today is actually in two locations. So let's start in 2 Samuel chapter 21. 2 Samuel chapter 21. We're going to start in verse 15. Show me your Bible when you get there. Awesome. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel. And David went down together with his servants, and they fought against the Philistines. And David grew weary. And Ishbibanab, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze and who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, You shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel. After this, there was war again with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibachai, the Hushathite, struck down Saph, who was among the descendants of the giants. And there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. And Elhanan, the son of Jeriorigim, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was again war at Gath. And there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, twenty-four in number. And he also was descended from the giants." And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. All right, now I want you to turn a page or two to 2 Samuel 23, verse 8. 2 Samuel 23, verse 8. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Joshua Bashebeth, a Tachimonite. You're going to have to forgive me for the pronunciation. He was chief of the three. He wielded the spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. And next to him among the three mighty men was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, son of Ahohai. And he was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle. And the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the men returned to him only to strip the slain. And next to him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Hararite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, and there was a plot of ground full of lentils. And the men fled from the Philistines. But he took his hand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines, and the Lord worked a great victory. And three of the thirty chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate." 
Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried it and brought it to David. But he would not drink it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zariah, was chief of the thirty. And he wielded his spear against three hundred men and killed them and won a name beside the three. He was the most renowned of the thirty and became their commander. But he did not attain to the three. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kebzio, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two aerials of Moab. He also went down and struck a lion in a pit on the day when snow had fallen. And he struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaiah went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things did Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and won a name beside the three mighty men. He was renowned among the thirty, but he did not attain to the three, and David set him over his bodyguard. Asahel, the brother of Joab, was one of the thirty. Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem, Shammah of Herod, Eliakah of Herod, Helez the Paltite, Ira, the son of Ikesh of Tekua, Abiezar of Anamoth, Mebani the Hishushite, Zalman the Ahohite, Meharai of Netapha, Heleb the son of Bana of Netapha, Ittai the son of Rabbi of Gilbeah of the people of Benjamin, Beniah of Parathon, Hittai of the brooks of Gash, Albanon the Arbathite, Asmaveth of Behurim, Eliahab the Shalbanite, the sons of Jeshin, Jonathan, Shammah the Haharite, Ahiam the son of Sherah the Haharite, Elephet the son of Abishai of Maka, Eliam the son of Ahithophel of Gilo, Hezro of Caramel, Perai the Arabite, Igal the son of Nathan of Zobah, Bani the Gadite, Zelek the Ammonite, Nehariah of Beeroth, the armor bearer of Joab the son of Zuriah, Ira the Itherite, Gareb the Itherite, Uriah the Hittite, 37 in all. You can thank me later for that marvelous display. <laughs> okay, so what we just did well, was we read two different sections in this story, right? We just jumped over two poems, significant poems. And I want to circle back and explain why. So what we see in our Bibles as First and Second Samuel was originally one story, Samuel. And Samuel is a chronological narrative that directs your attention to the ascension of David, the true king of Israel, and, and concludes at functionally the, the, toward the end of David's kingdom. Step by step, chronologically taking you to the ascension and the establishment of the throne of David. And then it just stops in a relatively hopeless location. 2 Samuel 20 records a second civil war and a wholesale display of foolishness and uh, marked treachery among the people of God. And that's the end of the chronological account of 
the kingdom of David in Samuel's story. Now, the thing is, you shouldn't be surprised by this, right? Like in Judges, we have this cyclical spiral of the, the destruction of the people of God by virtue of their own wickedness. And even in, 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 in the story of, of David, um, you see the same thing. You see that David's sin becomes the pivot point wherein David's kingdom starts to fall apart. And if you were to continue to read into the story of the kings, you would see that each king has moments sometimes of righteousness. But overall, the kings lead the people to the, their own exile, right? You see the gradual crumbling of the kingdom of Israel. So the, the ending of the chronological account of David's reign in Samuel shouldn't necessarily surprise you, but it does raise questions. Because this entire time we've been claiming that the author means for us to see Samuel as a shadow of the true king to come, Right? Well, don't despair, because at the very end of the chronological account of David's reign is this epilogue, right? This chiasm-shaped epilogue that points you to look forward in hope to a greater king. Let's go to the next slide. The better David, right? And you've got these... This, this last four chapters of Samuel is structured like a chiasm. We talked about this last time. A chi in Greek is an X, right? It looks like an X. And we use this, the, the literary term chiasm to discuss when authors regularly do this, especially in the scriptures, where they'll take two stories in two different locations. And then as the narrative progresses, you see that there's parallel stories subsequent and prior to those stories. And, and basically, you get this X shape of the narrative where at, at the center of the X is a very significant point, right? And that's what we talked about last time, and that's where we're here. We're right in the middle of the X. And this X is teaching us how we should look forward to the better David, right? Last time, we spoke about David being... Uh, the priest over his people, acting as a priest over his people to make atonement for their covenant breaking, right? So as we followed the shape of that narrative, we were taught to hope in a better priest and a better king who would make final and full atonement to his, for his people, right? And here we turn the page and we find what seems to be a strange series of additions to the story. The mighty men of Israel. Okay, let's skip forward two slides, would you? The mighty men of Israel. Now, I, I read this originally and I thought, what just happened? Because it appears as if, like, this guy is sitting in a room and he's writing out the story of David and somebody looks over his shoulder and said, you mean you wrote that entire thing and you didn't mention the mighty men of Israel? And he goes, ah, oh, right. And then he just jots down the mighty men of Israel stories and then he closes the book, right? And often that's how we treat episodes like this. But I want you to try and wrap your mind around, set aside having Microsoft Word, right? Set aside having a, a computer or a typewriter where, or even a fountain pen. We can go all the way back to like 1917. Set aside all the technology that we've grown accustomed to and imagine that you only have so much, uh, not even paper, you only have so much hide, 
right? And, and you have to be very careful with the words you choose because you know that this is going to be a very significant document that's going to train the people of Israel to set their hope in the coming king. And you've got maybe eight feet. <laughs> and you've got so much ink and you're just going to sit down and carefully choose every single word. You're not going to accidentally forget any details, right? And you're not going to haphazardly shove in stories. Everything is there on purpose. And this is no exception. So the big question is, why include the mighty men in this sort of uh, in, in the triumphant end of this massive and beautiful story of the kingdom of David that's teaching us to hope in our true forever king? Why include the mighty men right at this uh, right right in the middle of the chiasm? And that's a good question. Today we're going to answer three questions about the mighty men of Israel. I want to answer the question: Who are these people? And I want to answer the question, have they always been this way? And then if not, then I I want to ask the question, what happened? What happened to make these men so mighty? All right, because I think if we can answer those questions well, then we will we will understand completely why they're shoved here in in the midst of a display of the, the attributes of the coming King Jesus. Right? Why include the mighty men? All right, so I want to first take a glance back at this, these two passages. So look again at, uh, at chapter 21. We're not going to read the whole thing, but I want you to notice a few things. First, the, the, the story itself begins with David being nearly overwhelmed with his enemies, right? And and David's mighty men stepped forward to protect him and they laid down their lives on behalf of the king. And that's, that's just the first story, but we see subsequently account after account of the mighty men laying their lives down on behalf of the king. And it's not merely to protect his life, right? Like the, the story of the three, like how awesome are these guys that they're just... Uh, they just happened to overhear David saying, "Ah, oh, man, like the water in Bethlehem. Man, I wish I could sip that water right now. He's, as a king, he's longing for the establishment of the kingdom, right? He's, he's rightfully looking forward to God's establishing the kingdom of Israel and protecting God's people. But these three mighty men hear him say that and they say, okay, let's do it. And they break through an entire line of Philistine Garrison, and they take just to get him a glass of water, right? These men are systematically and carefully and repeatedly laying their lives down for the king. Also, we see in, in uh, chapter 21 that they slayed giants. Now, I want to get into this for a second because there's a couple questions about this. Um, first, uh, there's a variety of different terms being used to refer to the same group of people. You, some, some passages, some, or not passages, some, some translations will use the term Rephim, 
Uh, the ESV has chosen to translate that giants. I don't think that's a bad translation. I think that's a good translation. I think some people are uncomfortable thinking about giants walking around the earth, but there are much more miraculous things happening in the scriptures than giants walking around on the earth. And we know the size of Goliath, and also we're going to see some details that teach us that these are not normal-sized men. So, uh, basically, this passage, and there's a few uh, notes in other passages in, in chapter 23 that indicate that, like, one significant obstacle for the people of God is that the Philistine garrisons are punctuated with these mighty, huge soldiers, right? And, and the author makes it a point to say that the mighty men of Israel are slaying giants. Just like David's uh, kingdom, David's ascension was, was sort of launched after he's anointed the coming king of Israel. His reputation is launched when what? He takes, a, he takes a sling and he, whew, right? And Goliath is toppled. Now that is a great pivot point into one major question about this passage. Namely, chapter, uh, or chapter 21, verse 19 says, Elhanan, the son of Jeri-Urigim, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And you're like, What? That was David, and it was David. So let me just hop a few books forward to show you the account in First Chronicles because I, I'm going to suggest that that's actually a scribal error. Let me read you the same passage in Chronicles. And there was again war with the Philistines, and Elhanan, the son of Jer, struck down Lami, the brother of Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. So don't get confused here and don't trip over that detail. This is not a contradiction, okay? Now, let's keep moving. So these guys laid down their life, consistently laid down their life on behalf of the king, and they slayed giants. And then we have in chapter 3, story after story of these men standing alone before armies. I want you to uh, reread with me in, verse, uh, in chapter 23. Um, Next to, David, or next to him among the three mighty men was Eleazar, the son of Dodo. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle. And the men of Israel withdrew, but not him. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to his sword. I, I wonder if you've ever been out in a field working so hard that you become dehydrated and your muscles lock. Has this happened to you? It's happened to me. When I was in boot camp, this happened to me. I, I, you just you start to get... You can see this sometimes in marathon runners. At the very end, they just start to... Like they're, they're just locking up. Their body is so worn that the muscle just clings, right? This is the picture you get. This man is defending the land that was given by God against this enemy... And he's doing it at such length that by the end, he's surrounded by the slain enemies of God and his hand is just clinging. He can't even let go of his sword, right? And this is one of many accounts of these men standing alone before armies. And in every case, you have these men vanquishing the enemies of the kingdom. Now... 
we can answer the question, who are the mighty men of Israel? Um, I'm going to make the argument here that the mighty men of Israel are spirit-empowered, miraculous victors from Judah and Israel and the nations. Let's go to the next slide. Spirit-empowered, miraculous victors from Judah and Israel and the nations. All right, I'm doing this on purpose. I'm getting almost all this from 2 Samuel 23. Listen. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day. But he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines. And the Lord worked a great victory. Do people just do miraculous things in the Old Testament or the New Testament? Do people just do miraculous things? What has to happen to people to do miraculous things? Right? The Spirit. And it's not just fighting and battle and stuff. You get in the construction of the tabernacle, how does the Lord equip His people to do the things He asks them to do? He sends His Spirit and He gives people skills. Right? What you see when you're talking about the mighty men is you see the Lord working victory among His people by giving the gift of valiance and might and strength to these men. So they're Spirit-empowered and they are miraculous victors. On every level here, we get unfolding displays of David's campaign to secure the land becoming uh, realized by the hand of mighty men, right? They're they're not just declaring victory step by step. Like when we have, uh, uh, for instance, when I I was in the army, we we were uh, at war in Iraq. And even though... We have all these mighty weapons, right? And we've got this shock and awe campaign. You remember that? It was all over the news. Shock and awe, right? Like, like bombs flying down and like cities being destroyed and all that stuff. What's ironic is like everybody's like, oh man, America was so strong. But like it took years and years and still there's unrest, right? The campaigns of men, if they're successful, take a long time. And there are many lost, right? But we see here David's campaign to secure the, 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 the land of Israel is being, is being uh, executed by mighty works of miraculous victory. A single man does not stand against 800. That's not how it works unless the Spirit is at work to secure the land of Israel. Amen? So these are Spirit-empowered, miraculous victors from Judah and Israel and the nations. I'm getting this from uh, verse 24 to verse 39, which I will not reread. You're welcome. Um, As the 37 men, actually the 3 and the 30, uh, are being listed, you receive location information. And what's interesting about this location information is even though the bulk of David's closest allies and David's mightiest men are from Judah, his tribe, We also see that some of his men are from Israel. And then other of his men, three of them, are from the nations. And so we get this like diverse display of God's work among not only his people, but also God's work among sojourners. Okay? Now keep that in mind because I think this is going to become important later. 
Now, so for me, the question is, is this just a note about how David happens to be surrounded by really amazing guys? Have they always been this way? The answer to that is no. I want to read to you three different passages. I'd like it if you flipped there, but you don't have to. 1 Samuel 17. I'm going to read verses 1 through 10. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And they were gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azekah and Ephestamim. And Saul and the men of Israel, Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped at the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. And the Philistines stood on the mountain on one side and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side in a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. And he had a helmet of bronze on his head and he was armed with a coat of mail and the weight of his of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze. And he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. And the shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam. And his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron and his shield bearer went before him. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourself and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Listen. When Saul and what? All Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. This is Saul leading the armies of Israel. Unified Israel. Every able-bodied man in Israel with Saul shaking in terror. Okay, you need more proof? Turn with me to 1 Samuel 22, verse 1. David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. That should sound familiar. Adullam. And when his brothers and his father's house heard it, they went there with him. And everyone who was in distress and everyone who was in debt and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became captain over them. And there were about 400 men with him. Now, why does that matter? Why does that matter? Why did I just read that? I want to flip to 1 Chronicles 12. 1 Chronicles 12. To answer the question, who are these men? Who are these men that just approached, that are characterized by indebtedness, and that are characterized by social outcasts, and are characterized as as in distress and bitter in soul, right? Right? Who are these men? Verse 
First Chronicles 12, verse 1. Now these are the men who came to David at Ziklag while he could not move about freely because of Saul, the son of Kish. And they were among the mighty men who helped him at war. Skip down to verse 16. Maybe you're thinking, oh, well, maybe these are just some mighty men in general and not the mighty men in particular. Look at verse 16. And some of the men of Benjamin and Judah came out to the stronghold to David. David went out to meet them and said, If you've come to me in friendship to help me, my heart will be joined to you. But if to betray me to my adversaries, although there is no wrong in my hands, then may the God of our fathers see and rebuke you. Then the Spirit clothed who? Amasai, chief of the thirty. And he said, We are yours, O David. And with you, O son of Jesse, peace, peace to you. And peace to your helpers, for your God helps you. Who are these men? Who are these mighty men? They were terrified, and they were indebted, and they were bitter, and they were social outcasts, and they were desperate and in distress. Okay, so we now have a before and an after picture, right? Who were the mighty men before? They were terrified and indebted and social outcasts and desperate. And who were the mighty men after? They were spirit-empowered, miraculous victors from Judah and Israel and the nations. So what happened? What happened? What changed? Turn back to 1 Samuel 17. 1 Samuel 17. David took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in a shepherd's pouch. His sling was in his hand and he approached the Philistine Goliath. And the Philistine moved forward and came near to David with a shield bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine said to David, Come to me, and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. And David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head. And I will give the dead bodies of the hosts of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and to the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and He will give you into our hand. When the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet this Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. The stone sank into the ground and and he fell on his face to the ground. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. 
Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of the sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. Then the Philistines saw their champion was dead and they fled. And listen to this. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Sherim as far as Gath and Ekron. And the people of Israel came back from chasing the Philistines and they plundered the camp. What happened to change terrified, indebted social outcasts to mighty men of Israel? David happened. What did David do? He represented his people. And he defeated Israel's great enemy. And he led the people to a mighty victory. What moment changed the trajectory of these broken men to become mighty men? It was David's representational victory. Amen? And as the author Samuel structures the end of his narrative to teach us what to hope for, he reminds us that one major aspect of hoping in the coming King is to remember that the coming King leads a mighty force of the redeemed. Amen? The book of Samuel demands that we scan the horizon for a king like David, valiant leader of the mighty redeemed. So I want to trace the shadow for a moment. I want to to explicitly trace the shadow of this picture and then I want to pivot and answer, answer a bunch of questions about what that means for how you live your life. Okay? Just as the king of Israel, David, represented his people, defeated Israel's great king, and led his people to a mighty victory to establish his kingdom, so Jesus represented his people, defeated their greatest enemy, and is actively leading his people to a mighty victory to establish his kingdom. Do you remember what I said about the mighty redeemed? Do you remember their attributes? Spirit empowered, mighty victors from Judah and Israel and the nation. Who are the mighty redeemed now? We are. Spirit-filled victors from Judah and Samaria and all the ends of the earth. Amen? Who are the mighty redeemed? We too were terrified and indebted social outcasts. We stood paralyzed before our mighty enemy. Death. And we were helpless before the wrath of God. But Jesus... The better David represented his people by bearing their sins and laying down his life. And Jesus, the better David, bore the wrath of God by dying on the cross and defeated death by rising from the grave. And now Jesus, the better David, sends his Holy Spirit to transformed, terrified, indebted social outcasts into mighty warriors for the kingdom. Amen. So what does that mean for you? If truly this is teaching you to hope in a king who is going to turn people like who you were into people like who you're becoming, what does this mean for you? 
First, your story is the story of the mighty redeemed. Guys, I'll just be honest. This is just an opportunity to preach the gospel. You were dead in your sin. You were crippled by your passions. But if you trust in Christ, now that is a big if. I do not mean if you believe that Jesus existed. If you trust in Christ, you are made alive because of Christ's victory and you are being shaped and transformed into a mighty victor. I'm going to turn to Romans here. and I'm just going to read this. Um, Romans follows the application, really, ideally. I wrote the application, then I read Romans 8, um, because my wife said, hey, this is a lot like Romans 8. So I'm just going to read Romans 8, verse 7 through 11. Sorry, two seconds. The mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If in Christ the Spirit of, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although your body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life. Because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Amen? If you're in Christ, you are made alive because of Christ's victory. And you are being shaped and transformed into his image. The image of a mighty victor. Okay. Second thing I think it means for your day to day. Rejoice in your trials. Well, how do I get there? So I I think the Mighty Men story was one of the first stories I was told when I was a boy. Because it's cool, right? Like, these these are really cool stories. They're brilliant stories. Uh, I can't imagine. Like, what, what really strikes me is that we would not have the patience, even if we're really into action movies, right? We would not have the patience to watch a single man slay 800 enemies of Israel. It would take a long time. That's how amazing these stories are. But how much fun do you think it was in the moment? Think about it. When you're mighty, you don't stop being afraid of death, right? You don't stop being afraid like, oh no, what happens if I make a mistake? Do you? Maybe you do. Maybe you do. Maybe there's a point after which... But I, when I was in the army, I, I knew not a man who was not terrified. Even the seasoned veterans, even the guys from the Persian Gulf War who had been in the same place doing the same thing. Right? How much fun do you think it was to face giants and to wrestle lions and to stand alone before armies? Armies. My point is this. What will be forever remembered as spirit-filled victories in your life presently feel like suffering and pain and death. Do you know what I mean? If you persevere, there are great promises for those who conquer. 
But persevering is hard, and trials are miserable. And we often weep and yearn and pray, Come, Lord Jesus. But I'm suggesting that if you persevere, and if, and if you're faithful to represent Christ in the midst of suffering, you will look back on that and, and see that your Spirit-filled victories are ushering praise for the King of Kings. Amen? Alright, last thing. Oh, never mind. I want to read it. Romans 8, 12. Hang on. So then, brothers, we are debtors, and not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Boy, that all sounds really, really great. Provided we suffer with Him in order that we may be glorified with Him. What brilliant promises precede a heavy warning. Your following Christ will involve suffering. But listen, he doesn't end there. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not even worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Amen? Rejoice in your trials. That's not saying that it's not okay to weep. But when you find yourself in seasons of distress, as, if, as you probably do now, if you find yourself in seasons of distress, rejoice. Because the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory to be revealed to us. Okay, last thing. Your sanctification is a fundamental aspect of Christ's glory. Let me ask you a simple question. Were the stories of the mighty men included in the epilogue of Samuel to praise the victories of the mighty men? Is that why? Like like a footnote on the story of David is like, David was awesome, but, but if you liked David, man, look at these guys. Right? Is that what the author's doing? No. Why glorify the mighty men? Why reflect on the victories of the mighty men? Because they wouldn't be the mighty men without David. Let me read you one more verse. One more verse from Romans 8, 8 verse 19. The creation waits with eager longing for the revelation of the sons of God. Why? Why does creation wait with longing to see who the sons of God are? They must be really awesome. No. It's because Christ's work makes sons of God. Right? Christ's work to rescue 
indebted social outcasts and to transform them into mighty warriors magnifies Christ's glory. Amen? There's this narrative, and I I hate it, and I think it's a result of some very good efforts to keep people from believing that they are the center of the universe. These efforts say, you don't matter, right? In fact, I'm thinking primarily of what is, I think, a pretty okay book, um, uh, 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 Rick Warren's. Um, originally, it was, it was helpful to some people. But it starts with, it's not about you. And it's not about you. But this and a, a whole chorus of other statements that say, you don't matter, are lies. Because if you didn't matter, then, then what's the point in your sanctification? Right? Christ's work to rescue His people and to mold them by the Spirit into the image of Christ and to, to, and to allow them in graceful acts of mercy and love to partner with Him in the establishment of His kingdom and to proclaim the Gospel. That work is, is important to highlight as one aspect of Christ's glory. I think we are sometimes reticent to push for holiness and to fight sin because we have this lie that says, well, it's not really ever going to matter. That's not true. We, by our Spirit-filled victories, are ushering the praise of Christ. Now and forever. And so, fight sin. Pursue holiness. Lay down your life on behalf of the least of these because when we're sitting at the wedding supper of the Lamb, we will look back and see the Spirit's work to cultivate faithfulness and to cultivate might and to cultivate love, burden-carrying love, and to cultivate cross-carrying self-sacrifice in His people and say, how much is Christ worth? How much is Christ worth that He was able to do that with this sort of people? Amen? Amen. Brett, can you come pray with us? So may we as former indebted social outcasts, may we pursue holiness by the remarkable work of the Spirit in order to see the praise of Christ um, magnified forever and ever. Amen. This podcast is brought to you by Redeemer Church, a community of believers in Fort Worth, Texas, committed to equipping God's people to delight in God's glory and declare that glory to our neighbors and the nations. For more information, visit our website at RedeemerFortWorth.org.